Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 90. After more than 20 episodes related to the medical autopsy, we know Admiral George Berkeley well. In many ways, he was one of the central figures in the assassination of President Kennedy. We know from previous episodes that Dr. George Berkeley was President Kennedy's personal physician. Admiral Berkeley was the only medically qualified witness to possess first-hand knowledge of every aspect of JFK's wounds and treatment. Berkeley was in the motorcade in Dallas. He was present in the emergency room at Parkland Hospital, and he had attended the autopsy at Bethesda. Dr. Berkeley's insight into the JFK assassination medical evidence was, however, overlooked by the official investigative agencies. As I have said before, Dr. Berkeley was not called to testify before the Warren Commission. Berkeley did, however, make two contributions to the documentary record, both of which tended to undermine the notion that Lee Harvey Oswald alone had killed Kennedy. Admiral Berkeley signed the president's death certificate, and on the back of the death certificate, he placed an interesting notation. It read as follows. The back wound was located, and I quote, at about the level of the third thoracic vertebra. It should also be noted that the autopsy pad, which was used by the pathologists at Bethesda that night to draw the official diagram of where the wounds were located, the same one we have talked about in a number of prior episodes. And remember, that drawing is part of the official elements of the autopsy report and supporting notes. Well, it shows the back wound in the same location as where Dr. Berkeley noted it to be when he made the notation on the death certificate. And to top it off, he himself made a mark on the pathologist's drawing, marking and signing it with a notation, and I quote, verified. Why is all of this important? Well, the third thoracic vertebra is typically 4 to 6 inches or 10 to 15 centimeters below the point at which the shoulders meet the neck, and it's consistent with the location of the bullet holes in the backs of President Kennedy's shirt and jacket, both of which are almost 6 inches below the tops of the collars of those two garments. A bullet that entered Kennedy's back at a downward angle at this location could not have gone on to injure Governor Conley, let alone go through the president's neck after having entered from the back. If Berkeley's evidence is correct, then this information, in and of itself, would call into question the validity of the Warren Commission's single-bullet theory, and the assassination could not have been the work of just one gunman, for all the reasons that we have cited in previous episodes. We do know that the pathologists present at Bethesda that night in later testimony rejected the idea that the notation on the pathologist diagram pad was anything other than an imprecise notation taken down as a note during the course of the autopsy. But why then does it correlate precisely with the independent information documented by Berkeley in Dallas at the moment he signed the death certificate? Well, there is more to this story. In 1977, George Berkeley's lawyer contacted Richard Sprague, 
who was the then chief counsel of the newly established House Select Committee on Assassinations. This was before Sprague resigned the role in the turmoil of politics that took place during the HSCA's formation and its early existence. Robert Illy claimed in a letter to Sprague that Berkeley, and I quote, has information in the Kennedy assassination indicating that others besides Oswald must have participated. Illig went on to say that Berkeley was willing to talk. Sprague wrote a memo for the record, and so I'll read it in its entirety to you. It's not long, so here we go. It's a memorandum to file from Richard Sprague, dated March 18, 1977. William F. Illig, an attorney from Erie, Pennsylvania, contacted me in Philadelphia this date, advising me that he represents Dr. George G. Berkeley, Vice Admiral, U.S. Navy retired, who had been the personal physician for Presidents Kennedy and Johnson. Mr. Illig stated that he had a luncheon meeting with his client, Dr. Berkeley, this day to take up some tax matters. Dr. Berkeley advised him that although he, Berkeley, had signed the death certificate of President Kennedy in Dallas, he had never been interviewed and that he has information in the Kennedy assassination indicating that others besides Oswald, must have participated. Illig advised me that his client is a very quiet, unassuming person, not wanting any publicity whatsoever. But he, Illig, was calling me with his client's consent and that his client would talk to me in Washington. Well, that's the end of the memo. Richard Spray came under pressure from the media and from political opponents and, again, was obliged to resign from the HSCA. We all know that he was replaced by G. Robert Blakey. And to be fair, this is a memo written by Sprague and not first-hand testimony from Berkeley. Like the Warren Commission, though, the HSCA did not feel the need to interview Dr. Berkeley, who merely supplied them with an uninformative affidavit. With Sprague's resignation, we may have lost the one and only chance to formally interview and depose Dr. Berkeley under oath and to find out just exactly what he knew and I am fairly confident that he must have known a lot. The HSCA did make some official mention of the interaction with Berkeley, but like so much else that they swept under the covers as it related to the medical evidence, this too was dealt with in what was a 1963 FBI-slash way, kept right there for all to see, but described benignly and simply buried in the massive record of the HSCA's final report, just like so many things were treated in 1964 in the Warren Commission report. What did the HSCA report say? Well, simply that Dr. Berkeley, through his attorney, suggested to the HSCA that he might, I place emphasis on the word might, have some additional information about the autopsy. This nondescript statement was what the HSCA placed in its final report. And you might think that Dr. Berkeley was referring to something both indefinite and possibly trivial. Instead of a definite claim, true or not, that actually challenged the very foundation of the official story. So think carefully about the statement I just read to you that was in the HSCA report and compare it to the actual words in the Sprague memo. And I quote that, he has information in the Kennedy assassination indicating that others besides Oswell must have participated. End quote.
the HSCA finally did admit that Berkeley believed in conspiracy, but they did so without acknowledging that his belief was based on firsthand information, and they buried it in a place where you would not expect to find it, in the chapter, Pursuit of Records and Information from Non-Federal Sources. Well, even though the HSCA missed its chance to engage with Berkeley in the late 1970s, as time went on, Berkeley would make at least two references regarding the presence of a conspiracy that had been left for dead, ending up as a hanging chad, so to speak, in the historical record related to the JFK assassination. If only the interviewers had tugged just a little bit more on the thread and asked the obvious next question. Well, let's discuss those two incidents now. First, in an oral history interview with the Kennedy Library, Admiral Berkeley was asked whether he agreed with the Warren Commission's conclusions about, and I quote, the number of bullets that entered the president's body. He replied, and I quote, I would not care to be quoted on that. In addition to that, the author Henry Hurt claims that in 1982, Dr. Berkeley told him in a telephone conversation that he believed that President Kennedy's assassination was the result of a conspiracy. You can read more about that in Henry Hurt's book, Reasonable Doubt, an investigation into the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Unfortunately, some 60 years after the assassination, these titans of men are all gone now. Well, most of them anyway. There have been various attempts to try to obtain papers from Robert Illig's estate, papers that might be relevant to the Kennedy assassination. Illig, again, is the lawyer from Erie, Pennsylvania, who represented Dr. Berkeley and who reached out to Richard Sprague. To my knowledge, these attempts were all rebuffed by the estate's executors and Illig's surviving family. It's nothing less than a reasonable supposition, then, that perhaps somewhere in the locked cabinets of Illig's law offices or in some safety deposit box somewhere, there was placed a written record taken down from Dr. Berkeley. A written record of what might have happened in those few days in November and what he really knew about them, based on his first-hand knowledge. Of course, this is purely conjecture on my part, the kind of stuff you think up when you're thinking of a Dan Brown novel. But really, maybe we don't even need to suppose because the truth that is present, well, you can't write this stuff. As I said, most of these titans are all gone now, but there is one titan still chugging along with all of the sound and fury related to this matter that he had when he was younger. It's still there, even in his later years. That man is Cyril Wecht. A few years back, he participated in an interview and talk session with the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas, and he made his case for conspiracy. It wasn't the first time he'd done that. In the remainder of this episode, we are going to sit back and listen to Dr. Weck make his case for us in that Sixth Floor Museum interview that took place almost 35 years after he sat before the House Select Committee on Assassinations and was allowed to voice his opinion as the lone dissenter on the medical panel, the only one of those men to publicly reject the medical findings of the committee. And he, too, did that with sound and fury. So without further ado, let's listen to Cyril Wecht make his case for conspiracy in Episode 90 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.
Thank you very much. Thank you for being here tonight. Uh, I want to jump right in because we got a lot to cover in a very short uh, time span. Dr. Weck, I'd love to go back to where it all started for all of us, November of 1963. You were pretty busy at this point in your life. You were a pathologist at a VA hospital. You were also part of a law firm. Uh, tell us a little bit about your life when you learned that the president had been shot. Yes, I had... Uh finished my two years in the Air Force and then went to Baltimore for my fifth year in forensic pathology and my third year of law school, which had been interrupted by uh, and the uh, military assignment, but that all worked out well. I even met my wife there and um, came back to Pittsburgh in end of July, beginning of August of 62, and then I was pathologist at a VA hospital and um, starting... Um, to do medical legal consultations and became part of a law firm, right? So you were, you were uh, pacing yourself. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. And uh, <laughs> I already had uh, our first boy was born, uh, now a, a state Supreme Court justice in Pennsylvania. Um, so um, uh, we were talking, Steve, Stephen and I, uh, about uh, 63, and I was reminiscing that a Republican broke through Allegheny County, Pittsburgh, uh, overwhelmingly, strongly um, Democratic ever since uh, <clears throat> post-World War II days. But a Republican was elected district attorney following somewhat of a scandal. And a, um, an attorney uh, who had been a good friend of mine in law school, in, uh, in, in Pitt undergrad, was uh, somewhat active in the Republican Party, recommended me to him uh, to be an assistant district attorney and medical legal advisor to the DA. And um, so I was doing that then as of January of uh, 64. He was elected in the uh, first Tuesday of November 63. Uh, Stephen, uh, you know, I paid attention like any intelligent um, American, but I can't say that uh, I knew uh, anything really about the case uh, mm -hmm. I just knew what was what I was reading and as everybody here knows whichever side of this controversial matter you are on uh, so far as the news media establishment from then until the di until this day as we sit here now you know overwhelmingly enthusiastically uh, rigidly behind the Warren Commission report so I'm, I'm sure I'm correct in saying that there could not have been very much. I guess some people raise some questions, but um, then my involvement uh, <clears throat> in the case did not begin until uh, in late late '64, mm -hmm. while sitting with my good friend Charlie McInerney, um, head of the crime lab, as we called it, the forensic science lab in the district attorney's office, where it was quartered. Um, Charlie was a member of the program committee of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. Every year, the Academy meets <clears throat> third, fourth week of February, and they have multiple uh, divisions, you know, pathology, toxicology, criminalistics, psychiatry, question documents, etc. And uh, they have a plenary session. Each section meets separately most of the time, but they try to come up with a subject that will hold the interest of most of the different uh, sections. Charlie said, uh, we're going to do a Warren Commission report in the 65 meeting 
would you like to represent the pathology section? And I said, sure. And I went to the Carnegie Library with this great, magnificent library. Um, Carnegie Library, uh, <clears throat> I think everybody knows Andrew Carnegie uh, made his fortune in Pittsburgh, and we've been blessed with that at Carnegie Mellon mm -hmm. University now. And so, so I went there, and yeah, they, uh, they already had the 26 volumes. This is but, in but, late 64? Yeah, yeah, late 64, because I mean, or late 64, when, when they, they come out, what did it come out, late September, early October, yeah, yeah. right? So they got them damn fast. Mm. Um, and by the way, I bought a set too somewhere along the line later on for $75. How much, how much does a 26 volume set cost? I, I, I couldn't tell you, we have a few. $75 um, is what it costed. So I went to the library. And I immediately, you know, I go to the index, right? I don't want to get into the pathology and the medical stuff and so on. Ain't no index, baby. Ain't no index, okay? You know, from the very, because, and then this is a good point to mention, as you and I were talking, somebody, a dear friend, wonderful woman, Sylvia Marr. And people should know, this woman, divorced, living alone, single woman, I think she had a job. I think she worked at the United Nations. I'm not sure. It, this is back then in the, what, the mid, late 60s or so on. No computers, right? The, the, nobody even dreaming about computers as far as I know. Um, she puts together an index. The point I'm making is the government putting out 26 volumes, no index. That's already, in my mind, part of... I'm not saying they sat down and, you know, in like a, you, you sketch everything out like some big military battle. We're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. But this is the way that ships fell, beginning with J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI. How do you know in a matter of a couple of days or so on? Forget what anybody believes about the conspiracy. In a murder here in Dallas or Pittsburgh, you, you know, unless you got something cold, dead, you know, witnesses, but you got a murder and you, how do you know in two, three days? And then they find out that, that you're the murderer. How do they know that, that I didn't collaborate with you? How do they know I didn't drive you that night? How, how, how can you know that? How was it possible for Hoover to know that he had cleared the deck of, of, of everybody with Oswald? So the, the point I'm making, that was the, that was the, the milieu. That was, that was what was, was out there. And then for me, it, it flowed. Um, um, I gave my paper, and a couple of FBI agents were in the audience, we came to learn. There was a Hoover already had them. And can you believe that? The Academy. Not um, to hear what, what forensic scientists were saying. And it's safe uh, to say that that first paper in February of 65 was critical of the commission's findings. Yes, but, but, nowhere, but nowhere near as critical you know, as it came to be later on, because I still hadn't seen you know, a lot of these things. Right. So I remember, then I got contacted, uh, I remember I, that's how I came to know Sylvia Marr, that's how I came to know um, Mark Lane, and then uh, Josiah Tink Thompson contacted me. Uh, Tink had uh, um, somehow gotten a, a spot with Life Magazine to review the support film, yeah. asked me, uh, we, we, we hadn't met, called me up and told me who he was, and I went out there I think in December of 65, right, mm -hmm. to study the Zapruder film. And um, so, you know, that when began to open up the door and I became involved and so on. And then... Uh, you met Jim Garrison? You know, the Jim Garrison then contacted me um, in... 68. 68, 68. And um, 
met with him and reviewed everything. And then that was my first, I've testified three times under oath uh, in this case. The first one was in federal court in January, I believe, of, uh, of six, or December. I'm, uh, December of 68. December, December of 68. December 68, Garrison went into federal court to get access for me to the uh, autopsy. You know, I'm going to testify in a murder case. The judge, I remember it, and I remember who he was, Charles Halleck Jr. His father was the re GOP leader of the House of Representatives for many years from Indiana. I didn't know he was the federal judge. And he ruled from the bench immediately that the government must allow Dr. Wecht in. Um, and I'll never forget, I, as an attorney, as a, I, was, I was absolutely dumbfounded when the U.S. attorneys, uh, whoever they were, got up and in a, in a very arrogant fashion says, and I remember they were, we will fight this until hell freezes over. I had a hell of a dilemma. Um, in my mind, because yeah, a young guy uh, to get involved and to testify uh, and so on. But I had the good sense, and I'm proud of myself. Uh, I said, Mr. Garrison, you know, I, I, I can't testify as a forensic pathologist if I haven't seen the autopsy report. Yeah. And so I did not then testify, and the, uh, the trial uh, went ahead. Um, and um, then the next uh, time, was uh, very interesting too. You all know about <clears throat> the so-called executive order, the, the Jackie Kennedy, she became the owner of everything, right? She owned the clothing and the gun and the bullets, it's all hers, yeah. The last person in the world I think that would have ever even wanted to see anything like that probably was Jacqueline Kennedy. But they, they came up with this cockamamie thing. It was April of 65, uh, she gave this gift gift and then in a year and a half to the later, National Archives. National Archives. One and a half years later, October 66, um, they went back and I think two or three of the original people um, um, went back and a couple of others and they reviewed everything. And I'll get back to that in a moment. So in any event, in her gift, it stated that you can't get access, nobody, for 75 years with the exception that a quote, recognized expert in the field of pathology with a serious historic purpose, uh, interest in five years could apply. So I was mindful of that. I had been become, I had be become increasing, increasingly involved. So came October of, um, of um, 71, I fired off a letter to Burke Marshall, who as assistant attorney general to Bobby Kennedy, was the executor of that agreement, that, that gift, then a professor of law at Yale. He never responded. I wrote a second letter, no response. One day I get a call, Fred Graham, New York Times. Um, he introduces himself. Somebody's told him that I'm applying. And I said, yes, Mr. Graham, uh, that's true. And uh, he said, well, I'll get back to you in a couple weeks or so. He did. And he came, called me back, and asked me if I'd heard anything. And I said, no, I'll never forget this. He said, not in an arrogant way, I mean, just in a matter-of-fact way. Like he said, he said, do you mind, he said, if I call um, Professor Marshall, sometimes people respond to the New York Times. 
I'll never forget that. And I said, fine. So it, it worked. Then I, I finally hear back from Burke Marshall. He's going on Christmas holiday. Then uh, it already is now into 72. And uh, now he's, he says, I got to come to New Haven. Well, little did he know, that's my second home. We still have a home in, in, outside New Haven and the shore there. And my cousin and my best friends, uh, one of whom everybody knows from Lenders Bagels. I used to go and deliver bagels with Murray. But anyway, so I was delighted to go to New Haven. And uh, he interviewed me. It was, uh, and finally, I got in. And then that's when I got in in August. And that's when I became aware of those agreements. And I became aware of the difference between what was, what was listed in April 65 and what was inventoried and listed a year and a half later in October of 66, including a big metal box, which absolutely held the brain. There's no question about it with formalin and some photographs and other things. And that was the front page story of um, New York Times, page one, by Fred Graham, because he had the exclusive with me, of course, a president's brain missing. And we'll talk about that. And to this day, as far as I'm concerned, it remains missing. Oh, we'll have people, I'm sure, in the audience here who still believe um, people I've heard just many times. Well, the Kennedys uh, took and so on. Yeah, hey, the Kennedys had every right to do that. Um, a lot of people, uh, uh, Orthodox Jews for religious reasons, uh, um, and Muslims, and um, I, I, you know, feel that way about tissues and so on. They had every right to. But I've challenged everybody and anybody to this day to show me anything at all that indicates that that was done. And not that the Kennedys have to answer to me, but my point on that is that if, if they had done that, just simply make that statement indirectly through a spokesperson and that's it. Would you want somebody to continue to talk about your father's brain or your mother's heart every day or somebody like Weck talking about this, uh, you know, you, you don't, uh, that's, that's, that's terrible. Um, the, the point I'm making is that brain is missing where it is, uh, but I know damn well why it's missing, because that brain would prove the points I'm going to be making in a, in a short while. So um, that was the, then the next big time the Rockefeller Commission invited me uh, to testify, and I remember testifying for about five hours. We went on and on um, for five hours in 75. And um, then in uh, 78, I was uh, uh, appointed as a member of the Forensic Pathology Panel of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, which was established in 77, right? Mm -hmm. And they had the different panels. And I and eight other board-certified forensic pathologists met, and I gave my sole dissenting. minority dissenting report before the entire Congress. I remember Congressman Stokes and... and uh, uh, there was even a congressman from Pennsylvania, I think Bob Edgar. And um, um, so that was the, uh, the third time that I testified uh, under oath. And then Oliver Stone contacted me um, and asked me if I'd be a consultant. And I said yes and went down to New Orleans. And um, that was a fascinating time. I remember going there, the old uh, courthouse on on Bourbon or Royal Street, one of those streets, and that's where they were filming. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget, uh, there were um, Kenneth Costner, Kevin Costner, yeah. Garrison, right? And Joe mm -hmm. Pesci, David Ferry. Right. 
And Costner is asking Pesci, Garrison is asking Ferry, what were you doing in Dallas? He said, duck hunting. Mm -hmm. yeah, the famous scene in the movie. This is the true story. They cracked up. They had to do that scene about five, six times. They couldn't stop <laughs> laughing. They couldn't stop laughing. And um, then finally they finished, and, and, and Oliver Stone introduced me uh, to them. Before I could tell Kevin Costner, this is what a high, one of the highlights of my life, before I could tell Kevin Costner that my, life, my wife was in love with him, he, he, he said, oh, you're that guy with, uh, with the Kennedy business, right? Um, the thing I, I wanted to mention about Oliver Stone, and, and we've become friends, uh, um, and he's been to Pittsburgh for some programs, and um, uh, he, he, he gave me a manuscript, and he said, this has been edited and re-edited, and, and we, 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 we can't change anything. I just want you to check to make sure that there's no forensic, scientific, or, you know, medical technical inaccuracy. Mm -hmm. And there was only one that I picked up. They had grams for the bullet weight instead of grains. But what I'm very proud of, and the reason I'm mentioning this is, um, I had already been doing something that I do want to talk about, the Kennedy assassination of positioning Kennedy and, and Conley, mm -hmm. the two people from the audience, um, do that everywhere. Including this is the scene in the courtroom where where yeah Kevin so I, I, I begged I begged I begged him to do it and he did it and that's the scene in the yeah. movie um, and um, and I I I, I take I take her not uh, I'm sure other people had done it but but I mean but I mean to get it into the uh, the script and I think people remember that so um, you know then that's uh, continued and uh, been active with various groups I got a little some a lot of colleagues here I'm not going to start naming names. Uh, although Bob Groden, Deborah um, Conway, and, and, I, and many others who have been stalwarts in this for so many years, and so on. Let me, let me ask you a question, because you have been so passionate about this over the years. You're known for your passion. Where does that passion come from? We're talking about something that happened 53 yeah, years yeah. ago. Why do you yeah, continue that's to? That's a question that I'm asked uh, always. Uh, and it, it's not feigned. It's not forced. It, it just comes. Um, I guess it's a, just a combination. Number one, my, my personality. I get involved, and I, I do believe in things uh, um, strongly and form opinions. Uh, um, that's part of it. Uh, my 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 genetics uh, and so on. <laughs> uh, but but that is coupled with what I feel is important about this case, you know, and why it should. Um, not be forgotten and why it has to continue to be pursued. And we'll see how it unfolds um, at the end of the year when all these additional records are to be released in October under the 1992 Congressional Act, the JFK Records Release Act, calling for the release of all the documents that were withheld. And I've been um, chair of uh, CAPI that um, Ms. Longford mentioned, Citizens Against Political Assassinations, um, we've had, there have been other organizations in the past, and a lot of people have done some tremendous work. I'm not going to get into names because I'll forget somebody, I'm sure. Um, but um, we're, we're, we're pursuing this, and we're keeping our ear to the ground. We had a marvelous program March 16th, the National Press Club. One of our colleagues, Andrew Craig, set up. He's a member there, and it was a wonderful program. But 
it's a great program. The, 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 the chief presenter was Judge Tonheim. Now, John Tonheim was appointed by President Clinton as head of the um, ARRB. Assassination right? Records yeah. Review Board. Assassination Records Review Board. Okay. And um, he, um, he, at that time, was uh, in the Attorney General's office in Minnesota. The following year, I think, uh, Clinton appointed them to the federal bench. And that, that group existed for about three and a half, four years. They, a, the ARRB, I, I remember meeting him back then and been on a program. We had two big programs at, at the Wecht Institute of Forensic Science Law in Pittsburgh at Duquesne University in 03, the 40th, and 13, the 50th. Um, so Judge Tonheim now, the chief judge of the federal court in Minneapolis, the chief judge, Minneapolis, okay? He's there, the National Press Club, talking for a whole hour about this business. Zero coverage by the news media establishment. Zero coverage, okay? If there had been a car accident in D.C., it would have been mentioned. If uh, Joe Jones had shot Mary Smith uh, or, or whoever, that would have been covered. I mean, how, how, how can you? How, how can this be? Um, but... This is, you know, this, this in and of itself can be a discussion for an entire night, you know, the news media establishment, but, uh, but I just wanted to make that point. Yeah. Well, we're going to see some of your passion on display in just a moment because you have a presentation to, uh, to give us here. I'm going to leave the stage during this, uh, this portion of the program. You have question cards that should have been in your seats. We're going to collect those towards the end of Dr. Weck's lecture, and then I will come back to the stage, and we'll go through some questions and uh, conclude our evening. So I will be back in a few minutes. Dr. Weck, Dr. Cyril Weck. This discussion with Cyril Wecht continues in episode 91, and the finish is spectacular. Thank you for listening to episode 90 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.